But the heart of a father is that we do what we can to love our kids. And we trust that if we've done it, their hearts will come around. So God grants it. And here's the thing I also find extraordinary. The older brother, who in a Middle Eastern culture has a great deal of responsibility, just like in a Far Eastern culture. I'm the oldest of two sons, and I have a certain amount of, you know, inner, ugh, I got this burden to bear. How many of you are the oldest sons in your family? Let me just see. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, when bad things happen, everyone goes, what are you going to do about it? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's a burden. This older brother is clearly aware of all the goings-on between this younger brother and his dad. He can't believe it. But what's amazing in the story is that he says nothing. He does nothing to correct his younger brother, to challenge what he's doing. He does nothing to attempt a reconciliation between his father and this jerk of a younger brother. I think that paints a picture of the Pharisees it was meant to, and it paints a picture of a lot of us in the church who see people that we love basically giving God, and pardon the, the crassness of the language, but raising the middle appendage to the Lord, saying, you know, I'm done here. I don't care about you. I don't care about my Christian heritage. I don't care about the upbringing I was raised up in. Right now I'm striking out on my own. I'm done. And we see these people and we know where that choice will take them and it breaks our hearts. But just like this older brother, we stand mutely and watch them. And we say nothing to let them know what a huge mistake they're about to make. This older brother's silence amounts to what I think is a terrible betrayal of his family responsibility. He should have said something. He should have tried anything to reconcile this brother of his to his father. But he does nothing. And the silence is deafening. I think it teaches us it's pretty easy to watch people walk away from God and cluck our tongues and shake our heads and worry. But we don't do anything. We don't say anything. And when we try, sometimes it comes out so harsh, so full of judgment and threat. Maybe you've been there in your life, and maybe you know exactly what I'm describing. And I think the heart of a father is different than the heart of this older brother. So the son takes off, and I think this next act in the story might be hitting Skid Row. This kid, I mean, think about it. We like to say that the life of a prodigal is all bad all the time. But the first chapter of a prodigal life is sweet. Picture being about 21 years old, rolling up to a strange town in a Porsche 911 convertible, pockets flush with cash and a new Armani suit. And you're like, yeah! Dad's gone, I got half the money. Life is good. You pull up to the first restaurant, you're like, I don't care what, bring me the most expensive thing you got. I am living now. I defy you to tell me that that feels bad. I challenge you to describe that picture in a negative way. Because the truth is, I hear it. I'm saying it right now, and some dog part of me wants that. I'm like, oh man, I kind of like to try it for a while. All of us have a prodigal inside of us. And this kid took off from his father's household into a far country, symbolic and literally. And he lived it up. Nothing was holding him back. Everything he wanted to do but couldn't do with his money in his father's house, he was free to do out there. And he had exactly what he wanted, freedom. And what he discovered was he wasn't so good at this freedom thing. That in hindsight, living under his father's authority was not a curse but actually a blessing. 
Because for all his life, his father had managed to provide well for him, to give him safety. And on his own, in a matter of just a few weeks or months, he had lost half his father's fortune and all his dignity. It says that he squandered everything on reckless living. You can fill in the blanks. I've heard preachers spend 15 minutes describing all the possible ways. I think they're working out their own issues when they do this. But all the possible profligate ways this guy spent the money, I don't know how he spent it. All I know is a fool and his money are easily parted. And when you're young and rich, usually that's a very bad combination. Pray for wealth in your old age when you know what it's worth, not when you're too young to know any better. And so he loses his money. And you know, something about walking from God into a far country, when you make that choice, I've seen this happen dozens of times. There's, there ensues this downward spiral where bad goes to worse quickly and progressively in a person's life. So here's this kid. He's lost everything. He's too embarrassed to go back home. But what happens next? There's a great famine that strikes the land. You might call it a depression or a recession, but the economy plunges into the toilet and everyone around him is tight and, and up, uptight and, and they have nothing to give. You know what a downturn in the economy does to people? It makes selfish people out of all of us. You know, when the economy is flush, the panhandler on the street is living large because they go, sir, out of your excess, can you give me some? But when your money is tight, how do you feel about the panhandler? Dude, I'm barely eating. Get out of my face. When the economy is bad, people don't become generous. And so to make things worse, he's plunged not into a life that's, that's got nothing, but into a world that has nothing to offer. Everywhere he turns, he discovers that he can't get any mercy and he can't find any friends. This is truly being alone. I've talked to enough people who are far from God that I know this one thing to be true. When you're far from God, one of the most common experiences is that you feel so so alone. You turn and it's hard to find a friend, a true friend. You've got lots of people in your life, like MC Hammer who had an entourage of a hundred friends that he paid to hang out at his house till the money ran out. There might be a crowd in your life, but you can't find any real friends. There is a sense of aloneness to the life that's walked from God. Now, the funny thing about people who are down and out and far from God is that sometimes they really know that they blew it. Something happens to you, doesn't it? When you blow it and you know you blow it and you realize deep down in your heart you've got no one else to blame but you. You know that when you stare in the mirror, you're looking at your worst enemy. And when a person gets to that place, when they forfeit what, they was, what was precious and given to them to guard, this weird thing happens where you go, I don't care what I do anymore. I am such a mess, at this point, it's not possible to sink any lower. And that person often embarks on a very self-destructive path. Have you seen this in anyone you care about? They do one stupid thing, and they just figure, why not just live a whole life of really stupid things? Largely because they're punishing themselves. They don't believe that they're worth saving for anything. And the, the spiral just plunges down like that. And it is one of the most heartbreaking things to see. This kid... Uh, understandably, he's a Jew because of the story's context. And he attaches himself to one of the few wealthy citizens in that land who survives the famine. And in those kinds of settings, a lot of poor people would latch onto a rich person and say, could you give me some crumbs that fall off your table? And the way that the rich people would often get rid of these guys is they say, sure, I got work for you. And they would give them such a distasteful job that the person would eventually go, even this is beneath me. 
And so that's what this guy does. He looks at this Jewish foreigner visiting his city and says, I know what would really turn a Jew off. Why don't you feed my uncleanest animals, the pigs? Because for the Jew, even being around pigs was bad news. And he says, why don't you get right down in there and feed the pigs that I own? And he's thinking in the back of his mind, this Jewish kid's going to go, uh, you know, do you have anything else for me? Because I can't do that. But when you're down and out, you figure out, what the hey? Let's just go for it. And that's what this kid does. He takes the job to the surprise of everyone. And as he's giving the, the pigs what we think is actually wild carob stalks or shoots, it's, it's a kind of a plant that has a black berry that is edible by humans but has really no nutritional value. You can't live by eating that. It doesn't have enough nutritional power. And it tastes foul. It tastes, I, I, apparently from reading some commentaries, it tastes like body odor. So you would only eat it when you're just desperate to put something in your belly. And that's what they're feeding these pigs in a time of famine. That food which the people won't eat. And he's staring at it. He's thinking, dang, that kind of looks good. Put a little salt on it. Look at it with blurry eyes. And it, it looks like a feast. And he's longing to eat it. But even that is denied to him. And here's the funny thing. When you reach the very bottom of your valley... Sometimes it takes getting to that place to realize the only direction left has to be up. You can't go down any further than where you've come, and all that's left to you is to crawl back up. So that's what happens. And the Bible story uses very interesting phrasing. It says this young man came to his senses, or other translations say he came to himself. Have you ever had that moment where you're living just foolishly and all of a sudden you... Bleh! And you see for the first time, what on earth am I doing? I can't live like this anymore. This is wrong. I can't be in this place anymore. There are some people who get into a funk and they begin using food as therapy and they get to a certain point and they go, I'm destroying myself. Other people, they get into a funk and they start just watching TV and bumming around the house. Others get unemployed and they don't even try to find a job. People get to this place where they, or other people sexually, they enter this downward spiral of such self-destructive sexual behavior and it just gets worse and worse and worse and they have no dignity and no self-respect left. It's almost like they're trying to find ways to hurt themselves because they have lost all hope. But God sometimes grants to such a person a loving, merciful thing and He allows them at that moment to one day just snap to their senses and realize, I'm done here. This is it. I can't stay in the place where I am. That's what happens to this guy. But here's the thing. A lot of scholars have seen at this point in the young man's life a turnaround of the heart, a repentance. I don't see that here at all. Here's what I see. I see a guy who's hit such rock bottom, he can't dig any deeper down. He has at least enough sense to know that if he stays where he is, his life is over. And he's given this divine injection of a will to live. Not everyone gets that. Some people ended in suicide. Some people just say, forget life then. But this guy gets this idea in his head, I want to crawl back up somehow. And I'm willing to start at the ground level. So he hatches a plan. And he, he says, man, even the lowest of the servants in my dad's household live better than this. Why don't I do this? Let me crawl back with my tail tuppy to my legs and be all like, Yeah, Dad, <laughs> you know, I guess you were right all along. I'm a bad son. In fact, don't even call me son. Call me jerk. Call me whatever you want. I don't deserve to be your family. But 
if you would have me, I'd be glad to wash the doghouse or scrub the horses or something if you would just throw me some food. I'm so hungry. And he thought maybe if he humbles himself enough, ingratiates himself enough to his father, he would get to crawl back into his dad's household and work his way up from the mailroom. And this was his great plan. He figured, where else am I going to go? What other shot do I have? So he, he packs up his stuff, which is really nothing, and he begins walking in the direction of home. And let me tell you, this is where some of the people you care about, maybe this is where you are today. You haven't repented yet. You haven't actually met God yet, but you have enough of a, a, a trial in your heart to know this. Where you are, you can't stay. And there is this general direction called home that you feel instinctively drawn to, and you've begun walking there one step at a time. I think that there are more people than you realize in that state of mind surrounding your life right now. They may look like people who are hard-hearted, callous, insensitive, but somewhere deep in the heart, they've reached that place, and they're walking home. So he rehearses a line. And what's amazing to me is, as he's, and you can just picture him on the road. He's like, he's trying every possible thing. Dad. No, it's too, too sappy. Dad? No, that's not it. And he's probably trying to strike just that right tone so that he would make a good first impression with dear old dad and maybe get a shot back in the house. But as he's approaching his father's village, <clears throat> he's surprised to see in the distance a wisp of dust. First, maybe he thinks it's a horse, but he sees eventually it's a man running full tilt, and he's getting a little alarmed. He's thinking, maybe my dad sent the messenger out to slay me because he doesn't even want to smell me or see me. Imagine his shock when he makes out the figure and the face of his own father running towards him. Now, let me pause for a minute and ask you a couple questions. When you see the sun at his lowest point, he's made his bed and been forced to lie in it. Tell me what you think is in the heart of the older brother if he would have heard that news. What if the older brother had gotten a telegram? Your younger brother, he got everything that was coming to him. Remember how you thought in your mind this kid's going to screw up everything? He screwed up everything. He's living like a bum. I'll bet you, just reading what we find out later about this older brother, he might have felt something like, see? What about personal responsibility? <laughs> you know, what, about, what about making your bed in line? What about getting what you deserve? There would have been this swelling, this upsurge of vindication, self-righteousness. How do you feel as a bystander, an observer hearing this story, when this arrogant young man gets everything he deserves? And he's in the toilet of life. And he got himself there because he was an idiot. And you hear that story. Tell me for a moment how you feel about him. Because the truth is that how you feel about him is how you feel about so many people in your life. It's so easy to tell people stuff about personal responsibility. But let me ask you something. How many of your own wounds are not self-inflicted? <laughs> Almost every time I suffer, it's because I do something so heinous and foolish. Or I fail to do something which God has expected of me. Rarely have I been persecuted because people said, You Christ follower will stone you. I haven't, I haven't endured that yet. 
But I've been an idiot many, many times. I have an honorary degree from Fordham University in ideology, or idiotology, maybe. You know, we are so quick to judge others. The truth is, how you feel about this fool of a son shows where your heart is in relation to the father. Because unlike us and unlike the older brother, the father has a very different heart. And the, the fact that this father ran tells us something important. That from the day that this wayward son left the house, he stood on the parapets of his household and scanned the horizon, waiting for the day when his son would return. This is a very unexpected thing. A lot of people think that when they leave God, God shakes his hands and says, Good riddance. One day you'll come crawling back, humbled and humiliated. I think we often project onto God the way we feel about ourselves. I'm a jerk. I failed. I blew it. I can't even forgive myself. Imagine how God feels about me. And that would be fine if God were just a bigger version of you. But if this story tells us anything, it is that God is so not like you and me. He is so qualitatively different than we are. He doesn't fold his arms in judgment and vindictiveness. But he waits for that lost son to come home. And he waits actively. He's the one searching for the son to show any sign of returning. And here's the amazing thing. This son has yet to repent. He's rehearsing a line in desperate self-preservation just to get back into his life. But while he's a far distance away, the father runs to meet him. This is the God that we worship. He's not saying, well, you're almost there. Jump through six more hoops and I'll talk to you again. That's how wives and husbands treat each other. That's how a lot of parents treat their kids after what you did. <laughs> See if you're allowed to eat at the, at the regular table again this summer. Do you guys ever have a table set aside in your home for the people who are in the doghouse? You eat over there. You can't even eat with us. We treat each other in punitive ways. This God, while this kid is still a far way off, runs to him and says, I saw you. My heart was filled with compassion. And he hugs him and he kisses him. He puts jewelry on him as a symbol that you're not a servant in this place. You have always been and always will be my son. And he throws a party. And the son is about to enter apoplectic shock. He doesn't have any idea what's happening. And what's amazing is that the text tells us that the very line which the son was rehearsing as manipulation, he spoke in his father's presence as true confession. Let me read you what he said. He had planned to say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Those were words originally designed to get on God's good side, his father's good side. But something strange happened when he saw his dad and felt the embrace and felt the kisses. Something happens to people in the face of mercy. Self-preservation turns into repentance. Here's something we need to learn. You don't repent just by regretting your life. That's not repentance. Saying to yourself, I screwed up, is not the same as repentance. You cannot be sorry all by yourself. Repentance requires the presence of someone who will accept your apology and forgive you. 
I don't walk around muttering after I've wronged my wife. I am so sorry. I'm so, who am I sorry to? Repentance requires someone standing in front of you that gives you the reassurance, I'm listening. And when you own up, I'm right there. Something happens to this guy in his dad's presence where it goes from manipulating to genuine sorrow. And the words he was rehearsing flow out of him with tears. And the amazing thing is he chokes up and the last sentence which he planned to say, why don't I just become a servant in your house? He can't even get that word out. Because at that point, he understands how true these words really are. I have sinned against you in heaven and I am not worthy to be your son. wish we had a little more time, but I'm going to wrap up here. You know, this really isn't a story about two sons, is it? It's a story about a father. This isn't a story about us, but it's a story about the God we call Father and the promises He makes to us about the way He'll deal with us and treat us when we're weak. I want to speak just a brief word to you fathers in this room. I've been told, I'm going to get there in a few years, but I've been told that teenagers will stab you through the heart with nine-inch nail of their tongues. They'll say things to you like, Dad, I hate this family. I wish I were never born. I wish you were dead. And if they don't have the guts to say it in so many words, they'll think it or feel it from time to time. At least, so I've been told. I can tell you this. I pierced my parents' heart many, many times as I think back to my teenage years. Fathers, your children will break your heart. Moms, I know you know the same is true, but I'm talking to you dads today. And here's the thing that will make all the difference in your children's lives. When they've broken your heart, how will you respond? Will you respond like God does as a father, in mercy, scanning the horizon, for this profligate kid to come home? Or will you use words like, I disown you, you are dead to me. I don't have a son or a daughter anymore. If you do that, don't bother ever coming home. Will your children know, Father, that wherever you are, there will always be shelter and home and reunion possible? Will they know it? I've heard amazing stories about kids who go so far from home. And the reason they come back is because they believe that their parents will accept them again. I don't know how else to tell it to you, fathers, but God gives us an example of the kind of fathering that works. And I challenge you in the name of Jesus Christ to be fathers like God is a father. Our anger and vindictiveness never fixed anything. So let me wrap up. People have asked me from time to time, what do I say to my friend who's walking far from God? I get the feeling that maybe they're ready to come, come back or come home for the first time. What do I say to them? I don't want to say the wrong thing. Here's what I think we can say based on this story. The one thing I know you can always say is, listen, wherever you are, God's looking for you right now. You don't have to search the wilderness looking for God. God is actually looking for you right now. And here's the thing. Wherever you've been, whatever you've got on your hands, whatever you've done or seen or thought or said, you're going to actually find that God is different than you expect Him to be. 
There is a way you feel about yourself and you'll be tempted to project that onto God, but it's not that way at all. You will find this God astonishingly accepting and welcoming of you. Here's another way to put it. You don't have to creep back with tentative baby steps. You can come home running. You can come home running wherever you've been. Home is where your father is. You know, the story ends. We all know it, right? The story ends with the older brother, sweaty, grimy, coming home from a day working the fields, and he hears the sounds of a great party. He's thinking, well, what's going on? And he gets closer, he realizes through the other servants that this brother of his has come home and the party is for him. And he can't contain his frustration and bitterness. I don't get it. I worked for years to be the good kid. How come this kid comes slinking back home instead of having to jump through a single hoop? He gets a party that you never threw for me. What gives? What is the point of staying at home if this is what I get? That part of the story teaches us that there's more than one way to be lost. See, this father had two lost sons, but one of them happened to live at home. And I think that second lost son describes a lot of us. We hang out in God's house, and we totally miss the value of what it is to be home with Him. We remain upset that we've worked so hard and get none of the things we dream of. Where's my husband? Where's our kid? Where's my promotion? Where's my boat? This is how our hearts are. And Jesus teaches us this story to tell us that there's two ways to be lost, aren't there? Whatever kind of lostness you might find yourself in today, here's the bottom line message. You're going to find that God, our Heavenly Father, is an awesome Father. He will change the definition of that word for you when you finally understand what He's like. That word will take on a transcendent, unbelievable power. And when you realize what kind of Father He is, you will discover that you can come home running to I'm going to invite us to just bow our heads for a few moments together. You know, I'm not really fond of tricks. I don't like to manipulate emotions. I, I just don't think that's healthy Christianity. But I think in moments like this, I think some of us aren't able to hear a message like this neutrally. Some of you, this is your life right now. You've been loosely associated with this God for many years. Maybe too scared to leave the church completely, but too blind or cold in your heart to ever see what a joy is possible in relationship with this God. Maybe you've had that heart or someone you care about has had this heart that you're going to try life on the other side of the street. The way Christianity was portrayed to you was oppressive, and you were so tired of it, and you just left. 
And out there, you found out that it wasn't any better. But your pride won't let you come back. And you reason in your heart that maybe this God won't have you back. And what you'll get is a big cosmic, I told you so. What I love about God is that he reserves most of his lectures for the ones who think they know it all. And he saves his hugs for the ones who are coming home. And I want you to know this. That if you sense the call of God on your heart to come home, you can do it right now. This could be your day to come home running. So I'm going to make an invitation, and it's okay if this setting is not the right setting for you, but I want to challenge you a little bit. If the Lord is tugging at your heart to be done with life in that far country and to come home to safety, don't miss the chance to do it. There are a lot of things to be ashamed of in life, but this is not one of them. I'm going to ask all of us to bow our, our heads and close our eyes. And as I make an invitation, if you feel God calling you to come home, I'm going to ask you to do something very courageous and full of faith. I'm going to ask you to stand up where you are and let the Lord know and let the pastors of this church know so we can minister to you and walk you through some of the early stages of that coming home process. So I'm going to say a prayer for us. And then the praise team is going to lead us in a song. And as that song is going, just listen to them sing it at first. And you respond by standing if the Lord has pulled your heart. God, I thank you for the amazing God that you are. You're a father unlike any father we've known. And the truth is some of us and some of our loved ones are very far from home right now. We sense in our hearts that at this moment, some are being called lovingly home. Lord, today, let them not come back with small and tentative steps, but touch their hearts so that they can come home running. It's time. Today is their day. And so I pray you would do that at this moment. Invite them home for a lifelong journey of peace with God and wholeness in their hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And as a team leads us in a song called Come Home Running, let the words wash over you. And if the Lord is calling you to come home, I'm going to invite you to stand up where you are. Would you do that? The story this morning there was a second son. And this son thought that the way to get the favor of his father was to work hard and be a good kid. What he didn't realize was that he had his father's favor all along. This older brother saw his younger brother walk away from, from the father and said and did nothing, and he had a judgmental heart. And that son was just as lost as the other. If that describes you and you want to repent today, of the sin of callousness, of judgment, of arrogance. And if you want to say that you'd also like to celebrate being home with the Father by caring about the ones who have left. If you want to renew your commitment to reaching after the ones who need to come home, I'm going to ask you to stand. 
And as you stand, we'll sing this song together. And let, let that be your commitment to not being lost like that older brother anymore. So we're going to sing the song. And if you want to recommit your life to that, I'm going to ask you just to stand and come back to the Father as the older brother himself needed to. Let's sing together. Amen. Let's all stand and let's close the word of prayer and receiving the benediction. It's possible that this morning the Lord was tugging at your heart, but the setting or the moment was not right for you to stand. But if the Lord brought you one step closer to your journey home, I'm going to ask you sometime this week to get in touch with one of the pastors in this church and let us know that that's happening. You know, we're not going to carjack you and manipulate you or brainwash you. We just want to speak some words of truth into your life and help you. And God, I thank you for being an awesome father. That when we are the most unlovable, when we are in the deepest, darkest valley that we deserve to be in, when we are stewing in the pain that we have created for ourselves through one after another of our bad choices, that it is in those moments that your mercy shines brightest and you call us home. And I'm so thankful, God, that when we are at our worst, you're inviting us home and that we can come home running at any time. So I pray that you will continue reaching out to all those in this room who may be living far from home. Just call them, draw them to yourself. Lord, our lives are surrounded by people we care about who are walking in darkness, have given up on themselves. The light is leaving their life. And I pray that you will rescue those by calling them home to a happy reunion with you. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord smile upon you, turning his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day, and God bless all of you. We want to encourage you for, to just share in a brief time of fellowship before you go home. Get a coffee and, and donut, and then celebrate Father's Day today.